We are in John 11, as most surely know. We're going to be in verse 45 and following. I'm going to start in verse 43 to get the context. Because the big event that has taken place, of course, is Jesus has come to Bethany with the death of His friend Lazarus. And four days into the tomb, He will raise Him. So Lord, let Your Word, Your truth, now come and invade these lives of ours. Lord, Your Word... This isn't some internal thing we seek out within ourselves. The foolish world looks inward and tries to find a spark of divinity. The world looks inward to try to find its own truth. But these are fabrications and lies and deceptions, Lord, because the truth is not found within us, but outside of us. That, 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 that word from above, that word from heaven, the word of the unlying Uh, always faithful God must come from outside of us, pierce through our ears and take hold of our souls. And so we come and ask that our minds, our hearts would be taken up in your truth and that every hearer, Lord, would, would see Christ more clearly and be transformed by the renewing of our mind to, to know, to trust and to walk with you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. And so when Jesus had said these things, encouraging Martha in her flagging faith, He said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And we're told the dead man, who, the man who had died, came out, his hands and feet wrapped with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. This is the big turning point in John's Gospel. Uh, The miracles and the power of Jesus have attracted the attention of the religious authorities, but not in a good way. It's a sad fact of life, isn't it, that two different people can watch the same event and come to two opposite conclusions. One group here sees this miracle of Jesus and comes to faith. But here these others, when they hear of it, are all the more determined that Jesus must die. And so as we watch these events unfold, we're going to see not only the plotting of His enemies to put Him to death. 
but also the sovereign purpose of God in working everything behind the scenes for our good and salvation. And so let's just begin by noticing this, these men and noticing that no amount of evidence can convince those who are determined not to believe. Sometimes we imagine that it's just a matter of getting the right information into people's heads to get them to believe. We forget that faith in Christ is just as much a matter of the heart as it is the head. Now, it is also part of the head. The head is involved. There are facts and truths that must be believed. But yet it's the heart that must be turned. And as long as this self-willed heart reigns, no amount of truth, however persuasive, can turn it. That's why salvation must always be a miracle. The, The hardened heart of unbelief must be shattered and replaced with a believing heart of faith. And only God can do that. And we see that here. One miracle. Jesus just raised a dead man. But two conclusions. Verse 45, many believe in Him when they see what He's done. I mean, they say, did you see that? He must really be who He claims to be. But verse 46, did you see that? We better go report this to the Pharisees. Now remember who the Pharisees are. They were the religious watchdogs of first century Judaism. They were there to make sure that nobody got out of line spiritually by their standards. And, well, Jesus is all kinds of out of line as far as they're concerned. And so they get with the chief priests, who, by the way, were their traditional enemies and opponents. But they get with the chief priests, most of whom who are, are Sadducees, and they call this meeting of the council. Well, you know that as the Sanhedrin. Verse 47, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Israel in those days. This is John's first time to mention them to us. They were the ruling council. It was made up of some 70 men drawn largely from the chief priests and the families of the chief priests along with leading Pharisees and a few prominent citizens of Jerusalem sprinkled in. These men were charged with overseeing Jewish affairs to the extent Rome would let them. Because remember, the Jews at this time are ruled by Rome. They had been crushed by Rome and they're now under Roman authority. But the council was allowed to stay in place and permitted to oversee daily affairs. The main goal of the council uh, was basically to keep the peace in Jerusalem, to keep uh, the people in line religiously, and to keep the Romans happy so they don't come down here and mess up what we got going. But Jesus is threatening all of that with his shenanigans as far as they're concerned. Listen to them again. Verse 47, What are we to do? For this man, they don't even mention his name, this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. So what is it they're afraid of? 
Well, Jesus is out there and he's, he's stirring stuff up. He's, he's getting the attention of the crowds with all these miracles that he's doing. And, and, and they say, and what are we doing about it? <laughs> There's actually an interesting play on words here. Uh, they say, he's doing all this stuff. What are we doing? Using the same word. He does, we don't. You know, Jesus is the doer. He's the one taking action. He's, he's out there accomplishing all these things and we're sitting here accomplishing nothing while our power and prestige bleed away. And that's really what they're concerned about, right? Their position of power and prestige, just like you know, politicians tend to be today. And they say if we let it go on like this, people are going to believe in Him. They're going to follow Him, not us. And when the Romans get wind of it, when the Romans hear what's going on, that there's a guy out there being proclaimed Messiah King, you see, the Romans would put up with a lot of stuff from the Jews as long as they remained quiet and paid their taxes. But there was one thing Rome would not and could not tolerate, and that was any kind of rival king. And so they say, we've got to stop him now before Rome hears of it, sends the troop troops to crush our nation and destroy. When they say our place, they mean our, our temple. Crush the temple. And yet, you know what's interesting? You know what they never stop to ask in all this? But what if it's true? Could Jesus, in fact, be the Messiah King? How, ought we to consider that? <laughs> because you'll notice they never even try to deny His miracles. In fact, they affirm them. This man performs many signs. They knew that, right? They knew He'd healed the lame man near the temple. They knew He'd given sight to the blind man. They'd argued with Him about it. And now He's raised a dead man. They're aware that He has performed many signs. So what again is a sign? A sign is a miracle pointing to who Jesus really is. Just like a big flashing neon sign saying, here He is, this is Him, come look. And they'd seen the sign, but they'd missed the point. Maybe some here this morning are like that. You've seen the sign. You've heard the truth. You acknowledge that Jesus is, is like no one else. That, that He's done things no one else can do. You may even acknowledge outwardly that He is the Savior sent from God, but have you yourself trusted Him? They see the signs, but they don't stop to evaluate what it means. They don't stop to consider that maybe having Him is better than having the approval of the Romans. Maybe throwing our lot in with Him would be better than having the, the, the power and approval of the world. But they don't do that. They don't ask those questions. Why not? Well, because their eyes are so fixed on themselves, on what they have and what they want, and of keeping themselves out of trouble with the Roman world, that they never stop to consider what's really true. And again, I'll just press that. What about you? What about us? Are you more interested in keeping the approval of the world around you than you are in standing for the truth as it is in Christ? Because if Jesus really is who He claims to be, then nothing else matters. Second thing we see in this passage, God is sovereign. So sovereign, in fact, that it, that's a funny way to say it, isn't it? So sovereign, because sovereign is kind of an absolute. 
But God is sovereign and He can make even His enemies proclaim Him. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. We're at a point in history right now where it's really easy to fear those in power and what we're afraid they might do. Uh, Whether we're talking about government, big business, big tech, it's easy to be afraid of what they might do, forgetting that it is God who rules over this world. So that even His enemies who want to oppose Him ultimately must serve Him in accomplishing His divine purposes. We see a really good example of that here in Caiaphas beginning in verse 49. Now, who is Caiaphas? Well, we're told that he was the high priest that year. Now, that doesn't mean just for that year. It's not some kind of yearly office or that kind of thing. It it means in that crucial year of Christ's death, this man was the high priest. In fact, Caiaphas was the high priest for 18 years. Uh, From A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, the longest reigning high priest in the century. And and it it does appear that we actually have his bone box, the bone, his bones. Uh, His little ossuary was found. That's pretty exciting. Uh, Caiaphas had become high priest when his own father-in-law, Annas, was thrown out of office by the Romans uh, when he made them angry about something. And so he knew that they could throw him out as well. Maybe that's part of what John means as well. Uh, Caiaphas was high priest that year, (laughs) as long as the Romans permitted it. But as high priest, one of his jobs was to lead the Sanhedrin. Now this appears to be more of an informal meeting, so maybe he wasn't in charge, but we certainly see him exerting his authority here in verse 49. It's interesting... Did you notice he begins with an insult? You bunch of idiots! You don't know anything at all, numbskulls! I mean, that's basically what he's saying. And Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Sanhedrin was a pretty rough place with insults and sometimes even fists flying on a regular basis. So rough old Caiaphas leads with an insult and then proposes a solution. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people rather than that the whole nation should perish. So what's he proposing here? We gotta kill Jesus. That man's gotta go. If we're gonna survive, he's gotta go. And from his perspective, it made sense. It was a purely political decision. Jesus is creating potential trouble for us with the Romans. That's a problem. We could lose everything, so let's kill Jesus and problem solved. That's all he means. It was a cold, calculating, pragmatic decision, the kind that self-interested people make all the time. And yet, in saying these things as high priest, Caiaphas has prophesied and spoken far more than he realizes. The language he uses is sacrificial. Did you notice? He's a priest, right? That just makes sense. That's how he tends to think. But the words that he chooses point to a truth that he himself is utterly unwilling to see. 
that Jesus has come to die as a substitute sacrifice in the place of the people He's come to save. Look right at the center of verse 50. He says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people. Huper to leu in Greek. Maybe some of you remember that little preposition, huper. That's why I'm using this word. We talked about it a few weeks ago uh, in John 15, uh, John 10, 15, where Jesus said that he had come to lay down his life for huper, his sheep. And we said then that this word huper pictures this idea of a substitute sacrifice, of, of one who lays down his life in the place of the others, one who dies instead of the others. And of course, that's language that an old priest like Caiaphas would understand. I mean, how many times, how many times had he seen this take place in the temple? A sinner comes in leading a lamb to the altar. His hands are placed on the head of that lamb as he confesses his sins, symbolically transferring the guilt of those sins onto the head of that lamb. And then, once that has been done, the the priest, maybe Caiaphas himself many times, takes a knife and slits the throat of the lamb so that it dies. The innocent lamb dies in place of the guilty sinner. The lamb dies instead of the man whose guilt is the issue. That's this word, huper. The lamb would die for the sins of the people so they could go free. One of the commentaries I was looking at this week says this. It says, with these words, Caiaphas prophesied the nature of Jesus' atoning death. It was a vicarious sacrifice. The word vicarious signifies that Jesus died in the place of others. The word sacrifice means that He gave Himself in payment for their sins. James Montgomery Boyce writes, It was Christ taking their place, dying in their stead, taking upon Himself the guilt and punishment of their sins in order that that there might be nothing left for them but God's heaven. He was wounded for our sins. Transgressions. So Caiaphas speaks these words with no idea that the one he's just condemned is indeed that Lamb who's come to take away the sins of his people. He has no idea. So why does he say it? Well, John tells us, verse 51. He didn't say this of his own accord. It didn't bubble up out of him. It wasn't his idea. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. <laughs> I marvel at the power of God here. I marvel at the power of God as he causes this unbelieving, hostile old priest to preach the gospel to a room filled with unbelieving, hostile old men who are ready to kill Jesus. What power? What strength? What majesty? And do you really think you could ever win out against a God like this? Who makes even His enemies serve Him? In fact, John says the only reason he does this is because he was high priest that year and God made him prophesy. He doesn't do this on his own. He's not pro-Jesus. He intends these words to condemn Jesus. But what he meant for evil, God meant for good. Through his mouth, 
God proclaims the reason Jesus has come. I guess that makes sense. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the mouth of Balaam's donkey. It's no problem for him to speak through the mouth of an old unbelieving priest. He prophesied. So what did he prophesy? Two things for us. Two things that are so important for us to see. First, he prophesied that Jesus would die as a substitute sacrifice for the sins of his people. We read that this morning in Isaiah before the Lord's Supper. Isaiah 53, verse 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men. Of course, that's happening right now as Caiaphas is is saying these words. He's being despised and rejected by men who think nothing of him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we, speaking of his own people, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Unwittingly, This old high priest echoes the words of Isaiah, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his people. He prophesied the death of Jesus as a substitute. But second, notice he also prophesied that this death, the death of Christ, would reach not only the Jews themselves, but also us Gentiles. Verse 52, And not only the nation, that's Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. If he'd understood his own words at this point, this would have blown old Caiaphas' mind. That, That the death of the Messiah is not just for the Jews alone to bring them home and to pay for their sins, but also for us, despised, hated Gentiles... You know, we who were aliens and strangers to the promises of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, cut off from God with no hope of salvation, no promise of a Savior until Christ comes. And Christ takes upon Himself not only the sins of His own, but our sins as well, whom He has made His own by grace. Do you understand, Christian, your salvation is found in this verse. You are right here in this text. (laughs) Because that's what Christ has done. He took our place and bore our sins so that through the gospel we might be saved. Romans 1 verse 16, Paul says this very thing, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Isaiah, the prophet, says this many times. Isaiah 56, verse 6, they should have known this. He says, and the foreigners, which from the Jewish perspective, who's that? It's you and me. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathered the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to the Messiah besides those I've already gathered. 
He's talking about us. Because that's what Jesus came to do, to gather into one all the scattered children of God, all those whom God has chosen by grace and placed into Christ's hands to be saved by His substitutionary death on the cross. Dear one, that's the very heart of the Gospel. And of course, Jesus had already said this, hadn't He? Back in John 10... Verse 16, as he's speaking about coming for his sheep, his flock, coming to redeem them, he then, as an aside, says in verse 16, And I have other sheep who are not of this fold, speaking of Israel, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The church of the living God, forever and ever and ever His. But the amazing thing here is, don't lose sight, the amazing thing here is Caiaphas says this as he is overruled by the sovereign, gracious power of God working despite him. Again, if God can do that with him, what are you afraid that he can't do with your enemies? (laughs) So we come to the place then that the decision is made. The Lamb is soon to be sacrificed. Everything is now set in motion. Verse 53 says that they, from that day, from that moment, they made plans to put Him to death. Literally, it says they resolved. They determined to put Him to death. They made their choice. And in making that choice... All they've really done is fulfill God's predetermined purpose for them. They're going to fulfill this prophecy whether they like it or not. (laughs) Think about that. Think about that. Marvel again at the depth and power of God's sovereignty. He doesn't force them to decide this. He doesn't have to step in and and, and, and tinker with them to to make this happen. They come up with this all on their own. They're not coerced into this. This is exactly what they want to do. But in doing what they want to do, they do exactly what God determined they would do. Do you see, that's how sovereignty works. His sovereignty stands over and above and behind everything that happens, as the old Westminster Confession puts it, whatsoever comes to pass is the outworking of His sovereign will. Peter understood that. As Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, he says of these same Jews, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, he says, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Yes, they did know. But this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and you crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. You did freely exactly what God determined you would do. The early church understood this in a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. As they are beginning to feel the heat of persecution, they pray to God and they say to Him, Truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Right, Speaking of this event. And what did all these people conspire to do? Verse 28, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
And you and I must understand this. You can never outrun God. You can never outmaneuver Him. His will will be done. The only question is, in the doing of it, which side of Him are you going to end up standing on? Are you going to be like Caiaphas, doing His will despite yourself while you continue to resist Him, piling up judgment to come? Or will you do it gladly, joyfully, eagerly, because your heart and mind and soul belong to Him? They have sided against Him. And the result will indeed be one of judgment. See, you know, one of these great ironies in Scripture. They think they're doing this to save their nation from the Romans. And yet the very decisions they make today set things in motion that will result in the destruction of their nation and temple by the Romans. The death of Jesus and the subsequent removal of God's protection will ultimately lead to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But here the decision is made. Jesus must die. And as a result, verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there He stayed with the disciples. You see, according to God's plan, purpose, all those prefigurings of the Old Testament, the whole thing that God has been building all these centuries, according to that plan and purpose, it was not quite time for Jesus to lay down His life. Not yet, because He was the Lamb of God. And as the Lamb of God, He must die at Passover. And Passover was still a few weeks away. And so Jesus takes His leave of Jerusalem. He takes His disciples and heads out to the edge of the desert to a little town called Ephraim, about 15 miles hike away from Jerusalem. And there they will wait until Passover. They don't have long to wait. Verse 55 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So meanwhile in Jerusalem, things are heating up and preparing for His triumphant entry and ultimate crucifixion. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, Well, what do you think? That He'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the crowds are beginning to gather. Jewish law demanded that those who gathered for Passover must be ceremonially clean in order to partake. And that means free from any kind of ritual defilement, like the kind that would come from touching a dead body or bumping into an unclean Gentile or something like that. And that purification, if needed, would take about a week, according to Romans 9, Romans 11. And so that was a real challenge if you're a Jew living out among the Gentiles. Well, if you're living in Jerusalem, you're probably pretty safe. But if you're out in the countryside where those Gentiles live all around you, well, there's, there's just tons of opportunities for you to defile yourself, even accidentally. And so many of the Jews from those regions would come to Jerusalem a week early to, to engage in the purification just in case. 
That's what we see happening here in verse 55. They begin to gather for the purification. And there's lots of them, probably even more than normal this year, because you know people love controversy, and there's this controversy over Jesus and, and who He is and what He claims. And so they begin to gather. And John pictures these crowds gathering together and standing around the temple courts. I mean, they've got time on their hands. This purification thing takes at least a week. And so while they're standing around waiting for the purification rituals, they talk, they share gossip, and they keep an eye out for Jesus. Will He come? John even gives us a little taste of the kinds of things people were saying standing around in verse 56. I imagine conversation, you know, Good morning, Baruch. How are you and Mrs. Baruch getting along? So what do you think? Will he come? I don't know, Saul. I mean, everybody knows they're looking for him. Would he dare? The air is thick with expectation. Every eye is peeled to see whether or not Jesus will come. And we're told they even got an APB, an all-points bulletin out on Jesus. Verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. They'd, They'd issued a command, a summons, that if anyone knew where Jesus was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. There's actually an old um, Sanhedrin document from a little later than this, but looking back to this period, that mentions a herald sent out to the streets of Jerusalem around this time to declare that Jesus was guilty of sorcery and apostasy and was to be executed. The die is cast. The decision is made. Everything is in place. Jesus will die in Jerusalem this Passover. And, and so we, we need to leave this scene for now and pick it up in a couple of weeks. But as we leave the scene, people are standing around watching for Him, talking about Him, thinking about Him. They have no idea what's going to happen next. We do. Right? Christ will come, just as the prophet said. He'll, he'll let Himself be taken, crucified, and buried. And then on the third day... He'll rise again. All in fulfillment of God's promise to send a Savior for you and me and for everyone who believes. So what about you? It's worth thinking about. How do you see Him? They were looking for Him. Are you looking for Him? They were asking about Him. Are you asking about Him? To you, is he just an interesting person of history, a man of mystery to talk about? Or maybe you see him as a problem to be solved. You've seen enough truth to be a little disturbed about him, but you're not yet willing to believe him, to cast all upon him. You're afraid if you do that, it'll cost too much to give all to Him and forsake the world. And it's that, it, that's what you're concerned about. What will the world think if I embrace this Christ? Or can you see that He really is who He claims to be? He really is God's Messiah King who alone has power to save. Are, are you willing to bow the knee and proclaim Him your King? And forsaking all else, yield to Him. You understand, there is no middle ground. There's no halfway take Jesus, halfway not take Him. It's all in or not in. 
And so Jesus is who he claims to be. Is he or is he not? And see, you must take a side. And what I urge is that you would repent of your sin and believe the promise of the gospel and let Christ be all. Let's pray. Father, the history unfolds before our eyes and we see everything put into place. As Jesus says elsewhere in this same gospel, no one takes his life from him. He lays it down willingly. Caiaphas had no power over him that wasn't given. And so everything is put in place that our perfect, sinless Savior might lay down His life as the sacrificial lamb in the place of His people. Lord, we come to You. We who in ourselves are loaded with guilt and sin with no way to pay the price and a day approaching that we will stand before the living God and give answer for these lives that we have misspent and mislived. And there is no hope. If I stand in my own sin, there is no hope but the, but the fearful expectation of judgment. And yet Christ bore that judgment and took that sin as a lamb slaughtered in my place that by His dying and rising again, I by faith might have His perfect righteousness applied to me and I might become a child of God, one of those scattered ones Christ came to, to regain and redeem. Father, I pray that You would move the heart to see Jesus for who He is, to embrace Him by faith. And to have this life only He can give. Lord, we get, to, we get to celebrate some who've done that next week. What a joy that's going to be. But here and now, deal with the heart of each listener. Let us see Jesus. Let us as believers come to that place of saying once again, Lord, I will follow. You are my Lord. And let the one who's never embraced you embrace by faith and begin the walk with Christ. That is life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.